attention to the purging of the armed forces. In 1937, it was the turn of the armed forces. Stalin was convinced that he could not count on the army to follow his policies. The leaders of the army were tough and difficult to intimidate. Marshal Tereski was the hero of the Civil War, but during this period he had come into conflict with Stalin. Stalin claimed that the army was plotting to overthrow him. Travinsky and other generals had confessions beaten out of them. Travinsky's written confession actually had bloodstains on it and then they were executed. The NKVD then worked its way through the rest of the armed forces to devastating effect. That Stalin should risk wiping out the best commanders when the prospect of war loomed is a powerful indication of how far the terror had gone. The purge of the Red Army, launched by Joseph Stalin in the early of June 1937, can help explain his later sanction of the mass operations, a decision that finally pushed the political violence of the Great Terror towards the ordinary Soviet population. The mass operations were largely scale campaigns of state repression, spanning from the summer of 1937 to autumn 1938, and marked the high point of the Great Terror. The first operation was launched on the 30th of July 1937 against former Kulaks and other anti-Soviet elements. Therefore, similar operations target a range of different population groups, including national minorities such as Poles, Germans and Ukrainians. In total, the mass operation led to approximately 5.15 million people being sentenced by the NKVD and 683,000 executions, representing a significant acceleration of the Great Time. Notably, the purge of the Red Army immediately preceded this massive wave of violence. In May, the NKVD arrested Marshal Mikhailai Trinsky, a group of other high-ranking officers, and accused them of being ringleaders of a fascist blocked military conspiracy. Soon after, in early June, Stalin and the Red Army leadership called for an extensive purge of the military to root out any co-conspirators, and arrests quickly spread throughout the officer corps. Just weeks later, the first mass operations began. As this explosion of repression inside the Red Army closely coined with the first mass operation, we will have a look and show why the military purge may have acted as the spark and transformative impact on the course of the Great Terror. Before evidence of mass operations were published in 1992, historians of the Great Terror typically concentrated on political elites rather than that of ordinary people. Attention is usually focused on the repression unleashed by Stalin within the Communist Party following the murder of Leningrad Party First Secretary Sergei Kirov on the 1st of December 1934 and the three notorious show trials of former political opposition during 1936-38. But evidence of the mass operations now makes clear that ordinary people rather than party elites suffered the most during the Great Terror. In fact, due to a very large spikes in arrests and executions from summer 1937, it's been argued that the Great Terror was only really begun with the first mass operation. 
Historians have been forced to reconceptualize the Great Terror to incorporate the widespread repression against ordinary Soviet citizens. Yet despite the publication of growing body of research, there's still little consensus about Stalin's motivations. Historians agree that their objective was to destroy dangerous, unreliable population groups. But why Stalin perceived these to be a threat to his regime, and why he decided to take action against specifically in summer of 37, remain a disputed question. There's related disagreements about where the mass operations were concentrated to the early political repression in the Communist Party, and as such widespread arrests and executions of ordinary people tells us about the nature of Stalinist totalitarianism. The purge of the Red Army has been ignored in all recent research on the mass operations, even though this began in early 37, only weeks after the first massive operation. As we will explore today, the military purge was sparked by the Soviet leader's misconception that the Red Army had a deeply infiltrated by foreign agents and the conspiratorial military group was operating from the larger levels in high command. Stalin sanctioned a purge in early June to order to remove what he believed the fifth column from the armed forces. In this respect, there's immediate similarities between the military purge and the mass operations. Both were aimed at destroying the Soviet leaders perceived to be a dangerous and subversive group imposing internal security threat. But examining the military purge alongside mass operations can feel far more than their surface level similarities. It can help reconcile certainly conflicting historical accounts of the mass operations and contribute to our still incomplete understanding of why Stalin sanctions such radical repression during summer 37. The debate about mass operations and the origin of Great Terror is extensive and complex and cannot be comprehensively covered. Particularly what we're going to have a look at is two prominent explanations of mass operations that felt the approaching World War is the best explanation for why Stalin felt the need to internally secure the Soviet Union with mass repression and ultimately the mass operations were driven primarily by domestic political tensions. However, we also look at the interpretations that mass operations and by extension the Great Terror are preemptive and also were carefully planned. We have to stress that it's possible to avoid some level of speculation in any account of the mass operations as important documents remain classified. With this in mind, we will demonstrate why its military purge and mass operations are connected and how the former may have acted as a catalyst for the latter. One prominent explanation of the mass operation emphasises the approaching world war as Stalin's primary motivation for unleashing mass repression. In this interpretation, during the course of 37, Stalin came to believe that certain population cohorts, including the Kuluks recently returned from exile, criminals, religious believers and a number of national minority groups were potential members of a fifth column that would turn against the regime during that of an invasion. Fearing for the security of the Soviet Union at a time of a future war, Stalin decided to launch a series of mass operations to neutralise this potential internal threat. The mass operations here were seen as a prophetic response to perceived danger from the unreliable population cohorts at the time of an approaching conflict. They were carefully controlled and administered and brought to an end as they accomplished their goal of destroying any dangerous population bases. According to one historian has emphasised how mass operations were representation of the Stalinist regime high level of totalitarian war. Moreover, following that line of threat of war sparked the mass operations, David Shearer and Paul Hello have shown that they have not represented a drastic change in the style of repression deployed by the regime. 
there is a continuity in type of policing operations by the Stalinist regime from the late 20s. Mass operations were deployed against different socially marginal groups during the collectivisation and decoxalization campaigns, and later in the main 30s against juveniles and criminals. Even though the mass operations came under fire in early 37, they were criticised by Nikolai Yusuf, the head of the NKVD, for being too blunt of an instrument. A few months later, they were deployed once again, only this time on a larger scale. In this respect, the use of mass operations during 37-38 represented a return to a already established policing policy. The threat of war, the decisive factor in compelling Stalin to turn to them once again. By contrast, rather than point to the threat of war, another prominent intertip, intertip, interpretation of the mass operations has emphasised domestic factors as their primary cause. Archgetti focuses on the structures and tensions within the Soviet political system and sees Stalin's decision to launch the mass operations as one revealing a lack of control rather than representing the actions of assured totalitarian regime. Specifically, Getty argues that Stalin sanctioned the mass operations as a means to secure the support the local party leaders become increasingly concerned that they would lose their positions during forthcoming elections in the Supreme Soviet of 37. This new legislative body would be elected on an open franchise and local party bosses feared they'd be cut out to various anti-Soviet elements that became increasingly active during the year. According to Getty, local party leaders eventually convicted Stalin of the danger posed by the large pool of anti-Soviet elements in the summer of 37, and he sanctions to complain of mass repression against these internal enemies. In contrary to accounts of mass operations emphasising the looming war, Getty categorises these as rational chaotic strike against the Soviet population. The mass operations were neither long-planned nor were well-prepared, but were prompted by a sudden fear within the party circles that anti-Soviet elements would gain too great of an influence during the elections of the Supreme Soviet, leading to a potential loss of control in the countryside. When the Kolok operation began at the end of July 37, the Soviet Union was not facing any immediate foreign threat. Japan invaded China during the same month, marking the start of the single Japanese war. But this is not a pressing danger to the Soviet Union. The Japanese armed forces now entangled in China, removing one potential military threat to the Soviet Union for the time being. In the sense that the threat of war was really a primary catalyst of the mass operations, the timing was not adequately explained. Why did Stalin turn to mass repression in summer 37 and not earlier or later in the year? As stressed by Getty, why did Stalin not deploy the mass operations during 38 in response to internal events posing a far greater security threat in the Soviet Union, such as Hitler's annexation of that of Austria? We can examine the mass operations in context of the military purge that can provide further answers to help reconcile conflicting accounts. The significance of the military purge is now the high level of damage that Stalin caused his armed forces, but also how he completely misperceived the danger. The discovery of a military fascist plot which was formed in the central justification for the military purge had almost no base in reality. There was no fifth column, no conspiracy in high command, but the Red Army was purged anyway. As detailed, it's much to suggest that Stalin truly believed that the action was unavoidable, based on the evidence he received during the first half of thirty-seven concerning an apparent spy infiltration of the Red Army. And the same sense, in order to explain the mass operations, it's necessary to try and understand how the Soviet leadership could radically misperceive threats and how this could lead to cycles of mass repression. The misperceived fifth column in the Red Army discovered in thirty-seven was regarded to an extremely serious problem by the regime of one preparing a swift and decisive response. But 
it is not out of the question that the exposure of military fascist plot acted to shook Stalin into finally radical action against the already identified suspicious population groups, providing the trigger for mass operations. It may be an exposure of a military fascist plot that finally compared Stalin to the repression of former Kulaks and anti-Soviet elements that had been the object of much concern from the local party bosses in the first half of 37 and against the national minorities over the coming months. In this respect, like the military purge, it's entirely possible the decision to launch the mass operations was similarly taken at the last minute, lacked adequate preparation and was born of panic. If the military purge did act as a trigger, the mass operations were launched primarily in response of a misperceived threat and one shaped by most domestic political tensions of the regime's perception of external foreign threat. So having a look here at this apparent fifth column in the Red Army and the military purge. The most common explanation of the military purge continues to emphasise that Stalin wanted to further consolidate his power over the Red Army and viewed Marshal Mikhail Turensky and several other senior officers as potential challengers. Those who support this have argued that Stalin and the NKVD subsequently unknowingly had the group arrested on fabricated charges of participation in military conspiracy. The officers included Turensky, Irion Iona, Boris Tlevim, August Korth and Robert Eidman, Veltel Palyov and Vita Putin were put on trial on 11th of June. All were found guilty of leading members of the so-called military fascist plot and immediately were executed. Stalin then ordered a massive purge of the armed forces to complete this consolidation of power. Since the opening of the Russian archives, however, it's possible to examine the military purge in greater detail and it's been made clear that this was large more than a simple consultation of power from above. Roger Rees, for instance, showed that the routine purges carried out by the Army Party organisations before the Great Terror established practice of internal purging which helped drive the political violence between 37 and 38. The military purge had a far more complex internal dynamic than suggested the common label of the Trishkov affair. However, while we now have a better understanding of the dynamic behind the military purge, explanations why Stalin sanctioned it in June 37 are less developed. Historians argue the decision was driven by the misconception of the Red Army posed a serious threat to the regime. During mid 37, the Soviet leaders became to believe that a fifth column of foreign backed enemies had infiltrated the army. The military purge, which launched, destroyed this internal danger. In this respect, rather than being one part of a powerfully orchestrated plan to further increase Stalin's control over the state, the purge of the Red Army was reactive. It was response to the misperceived threat from foreign agents and the decision to sanction with the attack of the instruction, most important for the regime's defence, was probably made at the last moment. The concern held by the regime that foreign agents would attempt to infiltrate the Red Army dates back to its formation of early 1917-18. Once the Bolsheviks had created their armed forces, this generated a whole host of security concerns, one of the potential danger of infiltration by spies. Military intelligence was of high value for all countries during the interwar period and needed to be safeguarded. Thus, over the next two decades, the political police force kept the Red Army under close observation and frequently exposed foreign agents and various spy rings apparently hidden in the ranks. Those gen never received a large scale until 37, and neither were all genuine. Officers and soldiers who had relatives abroad could easily be arrested under the label of foreign agent. Troops sanctioned to border regions in particular were believed to be under greater risk of infiltration. Nevertheless, regardless of the actual truth behind the arrests, the impression that hostile governments were actively undermining the Red Army were sustained over the 20s and the 30s, and the danger from foreign agents remained a persistent low-level issue.
In early 37, however, there are clear indications that foreign espionage and sabotage was beginning to be seen as the most dangerous threats to the Red Army. This eclipsed the already recognised threat posed by former Trotskyites serving in the ranks who, since the murder of Sergei Kirov, have been guarded by the chief internal security threat to the military. Indeed, during summer and autumn 36, the Red Army faced increasing scrutiny by the NKVD after several serving middle-rank former Trotskyite officers were connected to the group of former political oppositionists sentenced to execution following the first Moscow show trial, having been found guilty of serious counter-revolutionary state crimes, including Kirov's murder. Subsequently, and following his appointment as head of the NKD in September 38, Enzo put the Red Army under pressure to try and flush out the remaining Trotskyite enemies as he convinced they were exposed to the ranks. The number of arrests in the military for Trotskyite counter-revolutionary soon declined throughout the second half of 36 as more enemies were steadily discovered. The Red Army, in the sense, could not be avoided drawn into increasingly political repression throughout 36. Domestic tensions were reflected in the military as much as they were in the Soviet institutions. But during that first few months of 37, the focus of the NKD's investigation into the Red Army began to shift further towards uncovering foreign agents. It's difficult to pinpoint the underlying clause of the shift for certain, but the worsening international situation during the mid-30s no doubt played an important role. Notably, the sign of the anti term pact between Germany and Japan in November 36 sent a clear and hostile message to the Soviet Union. This strong emphasis on the threat from foreign agents was particularly visible during the second Moscow show trial in January 37, which provided the background to the shift of the direction of the NKVD's investigation into the Red Army. Indeed, the charges against the second form of former political op- oppositionists at the January show trial claimed they were just not Trotskyite counter-revolutionaries who were apparently working on the direct orders of foreign governments. The NKVD was also trying to make wider connections between the domestic Trotskyite counter-revolutionaries and foreign governments at this very time. This can be seen in the NKVD directive published on the 14th of February 36, which drew attention to the terrorist, diversity and spy activity of German Trotskyites, supposedly on the orders of the Gestapo. In general terms, the perceived threat from the hostile governments, and particularly from fascist regimes, loomed larger in early 37. The shift in the parameters of the political repression within the Communist Party appears to be shaped by the coherent repression of the Red Army. For example, the show trial was underway several foreign agents and spy rings were exposed in the military. In one case from the end of January, the head of the NKVD had sent a note to the head of the Red Army concerning the undergoing investigation of the Trotskyite group detained since November 36 and included several officers. It was reported there had been a fully established that there was at least one German spy and they added a new charge of espionage group that had previously identified a straightforward Trotskyite group. That the perceived espionage threat to the military was becoming more pronounced was seen in the steady stream of reports and rumours filtering into the Soviet Union during the early 37, suggesting that certain members of the high command were disloyal and secretly connected to the German government. For example, in January, Pravis Berlin correspondent contacted his editor, Lev Milskis, concerning a secret, secret connection between the Red Army elite and the Nazis. Churchill was singled out for particular suspicion. During the same month, Arthur Oskultz, the former head of the Foreign Department of the NKVD, contacted the head of the NKVD about wrecking that he had almost apparently been carried out by that of the head of the army. Finally, on March 37, according to the NKVD information, the French Minister of War had supposedly spoken to a Soviet ambassador about a possible German-sponsored coup in the Soviet Union, making the members of the Red Army High Command hostile to Stalin. 
apparently following a military coup, a new Soviet government would then ally with Germany against France. Of course, it's entirely possible that the German government were purposely spreading rumours about disloyalty in the Red Army as a means of undermining Stalin's trust in his own military. Disinformation was widely practised throughout that of the interwar years. It's also unclear how seriously the NKVD took these rumours about disloyalty in the army. But even so, what the regime took is the worsening internal climate would be unusual for the NKVD not to increase their intention on the high command, even just as a precaution. At the same time these rumours filtered into Soviet Union society, senior members of the military elite began to talk more openly about the dangers posed to the Red Army by foreign agents. In a speech given to an audience by a military party members on 13th of March 37, the head of the political administration of the Red Army, Ian Gernrigov, was frank about the extent of the military that had been infiltrated by spies. Comrades, Japanese-German Trotskyite agents, spies and wreckers are in full range of our army organisations in the staff, the institutes, the academies, the military training institutions. And a week later, in a speech in Leningrad on 20th of March, he returned to this theme and spoke again about the espionage threat. In reference to the Red Army specifically, he added, The evidence of wrecking and espionage is not small. We know that Trotsky gave a direct order to his agents above abroad to create a Trotskyite terrorist cell in the Workers' and Peasants' Red Army, and Hitler and Trotsky gave an order to organise subversive cells in the Workers' and Peasants' Red Army in peacetime and were prepared for the defeat in terms of an approaching war. During the same March, meeting several of the speakers raised the problem of a poor security of secret documents, again suggesting that espionage threat was becoming a priority for the military elite. Gevergif criticised that he did not regard a loose talk about the contents of secret files and complained the documents were being left in public. The Chief of General Staff, Alexander Egeryov, pointed to the disappearance of a colossal number of critical documents and criticised the army for compliancy. Another officer, B.I. Beryov, remarked, There is not a month when any department of the NKO, the People's Commissariat of Defence, some kind of secret document is not lost. The Red Army have always struggled with the security of its secret documents, but with further intention now being given to foreign agents in 37, further preventive measures were needed. As such, just days before this March meeting, Givet signed a secret order concerning enemies supposedly working in clerical and technical offices in the ranks of army staffs and institutions. Enemies were apparently handling out secret documents and this was going unchecked by the NKVD. Clear indications that the Red Army, with the grip of growing spy scare, can be seen one month later. On the 21st of April, Ivlyai Alenskis, the head of the Air Force, sent Verdyov a report on proposed measures to prevent wrecking and espionage in his organisation. The following day, a similar report was sent by the head of the Red Army. Later noted that the search for wreckers and spies was underway in the Navy, already resulting in 43 discharges. It is almost certain that Ryoskov had requested these reports, indicating that the threat from the hidden wreckers and foreign agents in the Red Army was moving up his agenda. He was laying the groundwork for serious countermeasures to be taken against infiltrated foreign agents. It was within this atmosphere of increasing spy scare in the military that the first directly incriminating evidence, you could call, emerged against Trufieski and the other senior officers who would later be put in trial and executed for their supposed leadership of the military fascist plot. The first piece of evidence came in April from the confessions of a small number of arrested NKVD officers. All had been allied with that of Gervik Eriov, the former head of the NKVD, and were arrested as part of the purge of the political police.
undertaken by the head of the NPVD later overall. The testimony from these men claimed that the war leader who'd got them free, the, the Civil War, Trevesky, and other senior officers were linked by a now discarded, disgraced former NKD chief, Yokoda, and they planned a coup and carried out espionage. As the case against the group was quickly assembled with the additional support and evidence, between the 8th and 10th of May, a brigade commander, who had already been arrested for supposed membership of counter-revolutionary group, provided more material. Medvedev similarly claimed that Dravetsky and other senior officers were leading members of a co-conspiratorial military organisation. Now, we are to be under no illusions. No, this incriminating new evidence is undoubtedly obtained using forced confessions and it's not out of the question that the head of the NKD, NKVD was looking to expose some kind of military plot in the early months of thirty-seven. Indeed, an NKVD directive was published on the 2nd of April before any incriminating evidence against Turesca Group was obtained had already warned about the dangers to the army from foreign intelligence. This noted that German espionage had increased in the Soviet Union and the infiltration of the Red Army was a key goal of German agents, alongside creating subversive cells in the industry and preparing acts of terrorism. With a spy scare growing in the Red Army during the time, alongside persistent rumours from abroad supporting a secret link between the high command of the Nazis, it may have well be pushed harder to try to find any connection between military figures and foreign agents. If so, he got the so-called evidence. He wanted from the arrested NKVD officers and that of Metaif. Worse, however, the direction of the NKVD's efforts was almost to be influenced by Stalin's speech in February-March, given that one month before, he stressed the dangers of sabotage and espionage carried out by foreign fascist enemies and domestic Trotskyites and highlighted the continued threat posed by the capitalists encircled of that of the Soviet Union. Consequently, as a perceived spy threat to the Red Army and rumours about its unreliably steady gained more prominence during March and April, it's likely that the NKVD started to pay it more attention. This left the High Command in a very vulnerable position. All the members of the military elite, including the soon-to-be-arrested Trusiak group, had spread time in Germany training with the Reichswehr in the 20s and early 30s. Connections and friendships would have been established at that time, but these past associations would look highly suspicious in '37. As such, it's the underlying spy scare in the military, which grew through the military months and early months of 37, that the most likely factor behind the timing of the incriminating testament against these groups and appeared with the evidence extracted by the arrested NKVD men at the end of April. The growing spy scare in the Red Army soon came to a head at May when Verskov sent a long report to Stalin entitled Measures for the Exposures of the Presentation of Wrecking and Espionage in that of the Red Army. In this report, the detailed serious infiltration now facing the Red Army, and it's noted to have said the wrecking and espionage activity of the Japanese-German Trotskyite agents have touched the Red Army. Note they say touched the Red Army. Acting on the instructions of intelligent agents and imperialist states, malicious enemies of the nation, the Trotskyites and Zimbiites, have penetrated their vile designs into the Red Army and have already managed to infiltrate considerable damage to the various dominions of military construction. It was proposed a series of measures to combat this infiltration of foreign-backed enemies. 
Alongside calling for general increase in levels of vigilance, he wanted widespread checks carried out of all officers in the areas of the Red Army and Navy. Emphasis would be placed on investigating political pasts. More so over, officers with access to secret documents were singled out for more intensive scrutiny. Also recommended a strict procedure for checking all agents and so-called extraordinary incidents look for evidence of spies and saboteurs. Report also showed a comprehensive verification of the Red Army was needed to combat a perceived threat from workers and foreign agents. The Army also understood to have compromised by enemies who already managed to cause considerable damage to the military capacity of the Soviet Union. Now, it's important to stress that this May report to Stalin stands in clear contrast to how he previously defended the Red Army during the February-March plenum a few months earlier. At that time, it was emphasised that the reliability of the military and argued the leadership officer corps had worked hard to remove any subversives from the previous 20 years. But the performance was not convincing. Moltov, who is our head of foreign affairs, called for a thorough checking of the Red Army, commenting that given enough attention, even more enemies could be found. Without Stalin's backing, it's unlikely Moltov would have issued this demand. Stalin must have had its doubts about the account of the army availability. Indeed, the case had been undercome by that of the investigation into the military ongoing since mid-1936, which was succeeded in turn up steadily increased number of supposed Trotskyite counter-revolutionaries. This could have only weakened that of the position of opponents. So there was little choice now to redouble the efforts. Importantly, this May report coincided with the very first serious action Stalin took against senior officers incriminated as numbers of the military fascist plot. Before this point, Stalin had not taken any action against the group, despite the damaging evidence already collected by the NKVD from late April. Indeed, the day before he had sent the 10th of a mort about foreign agents into the military to Stalin and Moltov, there was also an accompanying letter to the Politburo requesting sanction for several transfers and promotions in the military elite. These received Poltebarrel approval on the 10th of May and included the demotion of Tomuski from deputy to the head of the Red Army to a lower position of commander of the Volga military district. In requesting Tova's transfer, it's likely that Volshul understood that there was some kind of action in light of his record outlining the extensive spy infiltration of the Red Army. He'd also already have known about the specific evidence gathered by the NKVD against that of the Army commands and senior officers, but this would have put him in a difficult position. How could the head of the Red Army not known his deputy was a spy? Now, the wider spy infiltration identified his own report raised the stakes further. Requesting that Tovishka was transferred acted in distance from the incriminating officers and provided a clear signal that he was taking directive action in defence of that with the Red Army. As the Peterborough quickly approved the transfer, Stalin seemed to agree that the only action now needed was taken concerning Trofeo's incrimination. It was likely that the impetus between Stalin's decision stemmed from the having received the report about the infiltration of foreign agents in the army. This was sent to Stalin on the very day that the Pro-Bureau considered and approved of Trotsky's transfer. The spy infiltration identified was an additional pressure to reports coming in by the NKVD about the military conspiracy in high command and probably provided the final push for Stalin to take action into the criminated senior officers. Indeed, soon after the transfer, similar measures were taken against the other named military cons- conspirators. On the 10th of May, of the Corps, the head of the Fruits Academy, was immediately arrested. The following day, Boris Fieldman, the deputy commander of the Moscow military district, was also arrested. Ionel Kalevia, the member- commander of the Kiev military district, was also removed from his position on the 20th of May and transferred to command of the Leningrad military district. 
Arion Uberichitz, the commander of the Belarusian military district, was also transferred to command troops in the remote Central Asian military district. Both officers were arrested on the 22nd of May, alongside Robert Eatman, the head of society to assist defence, aviation and chemical development. Tufikensky was also formally arrested on the 22nd of May. By the end of the month, all that was arrested officers had confessed their membership to the military group headed by that of Tuvinska. On the 26th of May, Trensom himself gave testimony admitting that he was the leader of the anti-Soviet military Trotskyite plot. The arrested officers were accused of working on orders of hostile governments to undermine the Red Army and defence of the industry to ensure that the Soviet Union would be vulnerable during the invasion. It appears that Stalin was very focused on the danger from spies, particularly German agents, at a very long time. For instance, in early May, he personally edited a long Prava article describing the methods of recruitment used by foreign intelligence agents. This article noted that before the First World War, German intelligence apparently had a list of 47,000 civilians living in Russia, France and Britain that it called upon to be its agents. The article emphasised the present danger from fascist agents and described espionage as a continuous secret war led by an army of spies. Other newspaper stories published during the summer similarly focused on the threat posed by foreign agents. But there was also indications that the spy threat to the Red Army specifically had been in Stalin's mind in the early months of 37. During a speech to the February-March Palladium, for example, Stalin made a military reference to highlight the danger from foreign agents. In order to win a battle during a war, this may require several corps of soldiers. But in order to thwart those gains at the front, all that's needed are several spies somewhere in the staff of an army or even the staff of the division who are able to steal operative plans and give these to the enemy. A month later in March, the head of the Communist International, Gorgi Dimitrov, recorded in his diary that Stalin had received two Spanish writers and discussed the Spanish Civil War. Notably, according to Dimitrov, Stalin had commented that the general staff of the Republic forces was unreliable and remarked that there's always been a betrayal on the eve of the offensive of Republican units. It's very possible that Stalin was thinking similarly about his own reliability of his own armed forces. Stalin's own concerns about foreign agents no doubt led to the credibility to the reports having received by that of Verushkov at the infiltration of the foreign agents in the Red Army and the evidence collected by the NKVD on the Trotsky group. Facing an increasing amount of military purporting to show the army had been compromised by the early May, Stalin must have felt some kind of action needed to take against these incriminated officers. But this still leaves unexplained why he hesitated, and the majority of cases had the officers implicated in the military fascist plot transferred in the first instance and arrested over a week later. One explanation for this hesitation was the idea that Stalin needed more inf- information based on the plot. Consequently, it's likely that Stalin wanted to personally verify the case against that of the Trifios group. There is no evidence that he did not become closely involved in the investigation into the military fascist plot, indicating he wanted to make certain the reliability of the charges himself. Stalin received the head of the NKVD, Yeshov, regularly at the height of the investigation between the 21st and the 28th of May, and there's material suggests he was involved even earlier in the month. But once additional evidence about the military conspiracy in the High Command had been extracted at the end of May, most likely that by Gurov or Fielman, who immediately arrested from the former Trotskyite officers of prison since 36, Sand did not hesitate any longer. His suspicions now had been confirmed and he fully believed there was a military plot within that of the army elite and no further evidence was needed and it was going to be risky to prevent any action. How could he 
fight the coming world war with an army that was infiltrated by spies, military conspiracy and the high command. It's also possible that Stalin interpreted his military plot as a first move by hostile foreign government against the Soviet Union, possibly foreshadowing a future invasion. In any case, Stalin was reacting to a misperceived danger and not acting preemptively. Thus, it's likely that Stalin wanted waited until the very last moment until he was certain of the basis of a military fascist plot. But once he had sufficient evidence of this meant that taking no further action was impossible. He then sanctioned the arrest of the remaining members of that of the Tuskegee group taking place from early 22nd of May. In early June, an extraordinary meeting of the military Soviet was convened to discuss the exposed military conspiracy with Stalin and that of the Stalin and Yezdov present. It was here that calls were made to root out the remaining conspirators in the ranks. In his speech, he spoke about the need to purge the military, to sweep out with an iron broom not only the scum but everything that recalls that of the abomination. It's necessary to purge the army literally up to the very last crack. The army should be clean. The army should be healthy. Stalin said in his speech that the Nazis had financed the military plot and he repeatedly accused the arrest officers of being German spies. One week after the military Soviet had been forced to sign confessions submitting to working on the orders of the German and Japan in planning to overthrow the government, a closed military trial sentenced the incriminated Trotsky group to death on the 11th of June. One person who almost certainly would have stood trial amongst them was that of Gerich, who was committed to suicide on the 31st of May following his own incrimination in the military plot. That Trotsky and the other officers were sentenced to a closed military trial and were not allowed to endure a public show trial suggests that Sam was responding to what he saw was a pressing danger. There was little time to arrange the elaborate show trial, make a defence, perform public displays of guilt and repentance. Stalin must have been alarmed at the scale of this supposed fifth column in the Red Army and felt he had to launch a purge immediately. The military purge advanced quickly throughout June as a wave of discharges and arrests hit that of the Red Army. In the nine days after the military trial, 980 senior officers have been arrested as members of the military fascist plot. At the June Palindrome at the Central Committee, yes off detailed that the number now stood at 1,100. Both the NKVD were closely involved in the investigation for now exposed military plot and the surge of denunciations erupted within the ranks as the rest gathered momentum. At the meeting of political workers in August 37, the new head, P.A. Smirov, commented that more than 10,000 letters had already been received relating to a military fascist plot. By the time the military purge was brought to a halt November 38, approximately 35,000 army leaders had been discharged from their ranks and nearly 10,000 were arrested. Even though 11,000 victims were eventually reinstated, this represents a highly destabilising and concentrated attack on the Red Army. The number of soldiers from the lower ranks discharged or arrested during 37-38 is unknown, but they were certainly not insulated from that of the purge. The examination of the military purge departs from those who have highlighted the threat of the war as the decisive factor between the mass operations in one crucial respect. It suggests that the mass operations were not well planned, cleansing undertaken by Soviet Union in anticipation of a future war. Instead, Stalin appears to have responded quickly to a misperceived danger sparked by a discovery of a fifth column in the military just weeks before the start of the mass operations. Stalin's response to the military fascist plot appears hesitant, last minute and almost reluctant. He facilitated over the arrest of the Trotskyite group and seems to have waited for more evidence of their guilt before sanctioning further action beyond transfers. 
Launching a wave of repression inside the Red Army was not an action undertaken lightly, and Sam Bersoon wanted to make sure that the case was credible. Yet when he had sufficient evidence in late May of the extent of the spy infiltration in the Red Army and the military conspiracy in the High Command, Sam faced little choice but to opt for an extensive purge. And as the military purge gives every indication of being a last-minute decision, it's reasonable to suggest that the mass operations stem from a similar impulse, and perhaps even more sense of panic. From the regime's point of view, its hostile governments had infiltrated the Red Army. Where else could their agents be? And this respect, the military purge may have sparked then that of mass operations. So the gutting of the officer corps created a huge turmoil inside the Red Army and affected at least 35,000 army leaders, resulting in thousands of discharges, arrests and executions. Previous explanations typically concentrate on Stalin's relationship with his military elite and he's supposed to be believed to become a block of his expanding power. Framed as that of the Trusikov affair after his most famous victim, the military purge is most commonly depicted as merely an extension of Stalin's advancing lust for total power in Red Army. Particularly what we need to be looking at and we need to be exploring is that Stalin did not attack his army in order to increase his power, but this is a last minute decision based on a position of weakness. Taking the formation of the Red Army in early 1918 as a starting point, we have to understand the key undermining attack of the officer corps in 37 to understand how the military was perceived as susceptible to subversion. From its very formation, the Red Army was seen as a target of enemies, counter-revolutionaries and was regarded as vulnerable to infiltration. Over a period of 20 years, the army faced an array of exaggerated imaginary threats. Stalin was plagued by nagging doubts about the reliability of his forces, from mass instability and lower ranks to supposed disloyalty in the middle military elite. By 37, these perceived threats had culminated in a spy scare and this would finally force Stalin to crack down on that of the Red Army. Particularly, the decisive factor in finally compelling Stalin to act against the Red Army in May 1937 was a perception that is unreliable. The military purge was initiated in reaction to a perceived spy infiltration in the broader army evidence about a conspiracy in the upper ranks. Stalin was now forced to take action, whereas in the past he had shown hesitancy in cracking down in the army. Even though Stalin still wavered at the very last moment and initially only transferred the majority of senior officers named in the military fascist plot, when further evidence was finally obtained pointing to the military conspiracy in the upper ranks, he sanctioned the arrests of Trotskyite and that of other officers. But the early June, the Red Army was seen as facing a severe crisis and mobilising the ranks for a major purge with Stalin's response. How could Stalin fight the approaching war if he believed that there was a conspiracy in his leading officers? Indeed, there is nothing to suggest that spy scare in the Army in 37 was cynically contrived. Stalin seems to have genuinely believed that the military had been infiltrated and had been backed up by enemies too as well. Thus, the Red Army was not purged to further extend the power or remove certain officers who believed would block his political um, assurance. The military fascist plot was not knowingly created for the purpose of furthering Stalin's control of the army. The military purge was enacted in reaction to a perceived spy scare, and Stalin acted in the very last moment. But of course, the military fascist plot had little basis in reality. The alleged military conspiracy was almost entirely imaginary. Stalin misperceived the danger from the army in 37. Part of the reason could be found in Stalin's own personal suspicions about hidden enemies and his concerns about capitalist encirclement. The military purge represented the accumulation of a number of evolving perceived threats that had their origins from 1918. 
From this very information in early 1918, the Red Army was seen as vulnerable to a number of threats that involved broadly in response and that were identified as dangerous to the Soviet Union by Bolshevik party leaders and political police. During the Civil War, the chief threats to the Red Army had been from trails of military specialists, the white forces and foreign agents. These were all external threats and the police, political police were concerned about the enemy within and possible infiltration of from the army. Following the Bolshevik victory of the Civil War, the chief threats to the army remained military specialists, the whites in exile and foreign agents, but the political turmoil of the 1920s produced a new internal threat to the military from the Trotskyite opposition. However, these dangers could be exaggerated. Despite the low number of arrested military specialist traders, white and foreign agents and absence of any immediate danger from the close of the Civil War, the army nevertheless depicted by the military political police as easily susceptible to subversion. There was even some alarmist fears about an approaching coup. The situation changed in 1930 and the political police had felt vindicated in the exposure of a very large military specialist conspiracy during an operation. This military specialist pot was nearly entirely fabricated and represented a culmination of fears of the political police about military specialists and foreign agents. The exposure of this plot could be a lasting impact of the perceptions of the army vulnerability and strengthen its police's position. The hidden threat from the hidden Trotskyites continued to cause the political police concern. Later, Dimitri was pushing the fore following the murder of Kirov in December 34, when members of the former political opposition became scapegoats and were quickly seen as posing a serious internal threat. During the result crackdown, the army also became effective when former Trotskyites in their ranks came under pressure. This culminated in the arrest of several senior Trotskyite officers, including Punta and Prinov, in the summer and autumn of 36. Attentions now firmly turned towards the Red Army, and there was calls from political force the army leadership was to root out the remaining hidden Trotskyites. Yet the charge of Trotskyism was not enough to draw a wide circle of officers into expanding arrests, despite the pressure being implied by that of Yesov. For more senior officers, such as that of Chufieski, to be affected, the opposition's conspiracy had to be developed later on by that of Yezov. Its primary form of threat and building Skyscar in 37, driven primarily forward by that of Yezov, which provided the vehicle for the army elite to be incriminated. During the second half of 36, Yezov developed already established Trotskyite threat to the military to include links and foreign agents and espionage in languages drawn connections between the different former oppositionist group and fascist states. This allowed the scope for the rest of the army to broaden during 37. Indeed, the army was the obvious choice for Yezov to draw his broader vision of that of conspiracy inside the Soviet Union. He inherited thick files full of compromising information of senior officers since becoming head of the political force in September 36. As soon as Yezov started pushing the danger from foreign agents, particularly in early 37, this provided the opportunity for a spy scare to build the army and for Yezov to capitalise on 20 years' evidence of army vulnerabilities, particularly to foreign agents. Thus perceived threats to the Red Army were finally taking form of the entire Army Kai Command in danger, and Yezov's broad investigation into the former opposition's conspiracy accumulated into that of senior officers. Admittedly, it's very difficult to know the precise point Stalin decided to turn against that of the army. The persistent rumours running into early 37 about a secret connection between the Red Army and Germany would have only added to growing suspicions and focused political police attentions further. Under pressure from already identified broader spy infiltration and ranks, Salm was then compiled to take some action into light of evidence pointing to military conspiracy, beginning with the transfer of that of Turiska in the 10th of May. 
but importantly there's no indication that the military purge was long panned or that of premeditated. This was a last minute response to an exaggerated perceived threat. Furthermore, the scale of resulting military purge quickly reached a level that was unforeseen. In this respect, the military purge of 37-38 can only be fully understood as Stalin's attitude towards the Red Army is explored. Even though much of the evidence used for assessing his relationship with the military has been indirect, owing to still large amounts of classified material in Stalin's personal archive and inaccessible political police documents, it suggests that Stalin was never comfortable with that of his own army. He could never fully trust his army and was plagued by nagging doubts about its reliability. However, at the same time he knew the Red Army was indispensable support of his power and vital for the defence of the Soviet Union. Consequently, Stalin was reluctant to crack down the army without very good reason and he leaned towards restraint. For example, Stalin accommodated large numbers of military specialists in command positions in the early 1930s, despite the political police's concerns about their loyalty. Stalin knew he needed their expertise. Indeed, he forged a working relationship with that of Tumolsky, the only one person in the army subjected to the most persistent rumours about their disloyalty. Stalin recognised Hand when he saw it, but he never trusted the military specialists as much as he did that of the Red Commanders. He did not value Thomas's loyalty as highly that of Ryosk or that of Bunkens. Stalin suddenly kept a close eye on his military elite, but there was no strong case against them until 37. In addition, Stalin would have been well briefed about the political police's concerns and subversive activity of various different enemies about that of the Red Army. He knew that political police were alarmed about the possible infiltration, but Stalin did not share his views entirely. The Trotskyites present in the army during the 20s reveals a divergence towards Stalin and the political force, and demonstrates that he was reluctant to crack down the military without being absolutely certain of that of the danger. We also need to take into Stalin's consideration of that of Tushkiev's scroll. His name certainly should not have been given to the military purge, but Dreyoskov managed to attract more suspicions and doubts about his loyalty than any other person in the army elite. In the 1920s, he was the hope of the white circles that he would challenge Bolshevik regime. For many outside the Soviet Union, if anyone was going to challenge Stalin, it would be him. The rumours were so poignant that his name was used by Soviet political police force as part of their entrapment operations in the 1920s. Even inside the Soviet Union, it became so much of an unspoken assumption that he could be disloyal. His name had a habit of surfacing in political police investigations and counter-revolutionary groups, and there seemed to be a certain acceptance in the party circles that he was potentially unreliable. Importantly, any such rumours and hearsay about him kept in expanding police files. However, these rumours and this disloyalty was unsubstantiated. There's nothing to suggest that he was entertained ideas about seizing power or was even sympathetic with a political opposition. What he did have was ambition for power within the Red Army. It's likely that he felt better qualified than that of Zhurov to lead the army. As such, even though Tereska was not a Russian Bonaparte, there was nothing against he could conspire to be removed from the army leadership. His ambitions may have given that impression. He had a particular vision about what he saw the direction of army modernisation and tracked the hostility of his colleagues. Because of the army military elite, it consisted of an mixture of professional officers such as Ryoshkov and Bernia. This created conditions for conflict about modernisation and that of rearmament. Intense clashes over the role of cavalry and staff power in the 20s and 30s revealed the fault lines in the upper military elite. However, where that of Tirofo's particular experience, it is important of showing that for some of his victims of that of the Great Terror, the reasons why they were arrested or executed can be dated back to 1917. Why Tushkev became one of the public representations of wider conspiracy during the Great Terror it was not about a prominent officer who was implicated in military conspiracy, but because he had a compromised past full of rumours about his disloyalty. 
These rumours persisted into 37, at which point the rise in political repression and spying scare made him an easy target for that of the political police. And by 1937, Stalin could no longer ignore a large file of compromised material on him alone too as well. Yet, he would not be alone in having such police file growing with pieces of uncomprising information and rumour. Many other senior officers in the army were certainly in the same position. Other senior officers have been subject to speculation in white circles in the 1920s and their names in the Soviet entrapment of operations. The Bush fixed regime attempt to keep close observation over suspicious individuals such as that of Trushyov was characteristic of totalitarian rule. The regime was not only highly concerned about the loyalty of prominent and powerful figures, but it extended to the wider population. It expected manpower resources to be carefully monitored anti-Soviet feeling with the different sections of Soviet society. However, it was a failure to monitor potential enemies to a level which gave the regime confidence that left a deep sense of vulnerability. When a major crisis hit the regime, such as the military fascist plot in the Red Army, this lack of confidence about who was the enemy and who was left loyal left anyone with the slightest information in danger of that of arrest. Lacking confidence and loyalty of the Soviet society, Stalin would take no chances about his calls for Soviet masses to help expose hidden enemies. The army was very sensitive to changes in the broader conspiracy narrative which defined the Great Terror. For example, following the Kirov assassination December 34, there was an increase in political arrests in general terms as Stalin clamped down on former political opposition. The Red Army likewise saw an increase in political arrests. Later in 36, when former Trotskyites and members of the former opposition were the focus of Stalin and political police's attention, the Red Army also saw an increase in the number of former arrests of Trotskyites. The investigation into the first show trial in, April, in August 1936 was a turning point for the Red Army when alleged links were drawn between that of Kevik and Kevik. Counter-revolutionary brought in senior officers into that of the army. Most importantly, as the broader conspiracy narrative of the political repression into the Bolshevik party evolved into 37 and gradually took more profound internal dimension, placing greater emphasis on the perceived threat from that of foreign agents, it's also reflected in that of the military. In addition, Yefit's role in the Great Terror is well documented and this has been shown in the importance of the military purge. The wider point to emphasise is the Red Army was not a vacuum. It was not closely integrated by the Bolshevik party and was also receptive to how perceived threats were defined by Stalin. External pressure such as the party repression directly shaped the repression in the army. The military purge was certainly a accumulation of a number of perceived threats specific to the Red Army and stretched back to 1918 but was also the product of a specific series of political events and were crucial in raising political dimensions inside the Bolshevik party. How the broader external conspiracy narrative that defined the Great Power developed from 34 is inseparable from that of the military purge. Furthermore, as soon as the initiation of the military purge, Stalin approved a series of mass operations starting in early August, targeting the broader Soviet population. This included a mass operation based on Order 00447, which targeted Kulak's criminals and other anti-Soviet elements. Later operations during the end of 37 and 38 targeted anti-Soviet elements within suspicious foreign nationalities such as Germans, Poles and Koreans. The Great Terror now moved into a wider Soviet population. The mass operation saw arrests of tens of thousands by list, many of them were executed after judgment by extra-legal trigola. The examination of the military purge suggests to gain a fuller understanding of the broader processes that drove the Great Terror, it's necessary to try and understand Stalin's worldview and how he defined threats to his regime and his personal power. Most importantly, Stalin misperceived the internal situation and he had an incorrect view of the reliability of his own key power bases such as the Red Army. Stalin expected an inevitable war, but he did not fully trust his means of defence. He was plagued by doubts about the reliability of the army from which from most senior officers to how easily it would be seen the ranks could be infiltrated by various enemies. 
However, these concerns were based on threats that could be saturated by a number of influences, including the methods used by political force. The Bolsheviks' distrust of standing armies, the particular composition of the army command and Stalin's personal concerns about capitalist encirclement and subversion of foreign agents. Stalin's misconception of threats led him to attack the military, the institution he needed most to build up in the war. Why it's indisputable that Stalin wanted to retain his power and this remains a key motivation behind the terror, it's crucial to try to understand what Stalin believed to be put this at risk. Only examining the influences to Stalin's worldview will do this. Finally, this analysis of the military purge demonstrates that to reach a better understanding of how Stalin perceived threats and why he used state violence so frequently, the Great Terror has also been seen more broadly than usual in the case in literature. We can argue that the explosion of violence in mid-1930s can be explained by seeing the terror as a culmination of a long history of Stalin's nagging doubts and suspicions about the reliability of different groups and institutions in the Soviet system that date back to the revolution and which by 37 become too much to ignore when the regime experienced a period of extreme crisis.